welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, July 1st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. Supreme Court rejects the student loan forgiveness. SCOTUS also makes key rulings on LGBTQ plus protections. Bolsonaro is banned from running for office in Brazil. The U.S. Mull sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. The World Bank approves $700 million for crisis-hit Sri Lanka. $400 million in U.S. arms sales is approved for Taiwan. A Parkland shooting police officer is found not guilty of neglect. Google will remove news search functionality in Canada. A tragic lynching of a Muslim in India is tied to beef sales. And astronomers say a planet has escaped death in a binary star system. In our top story, the Supreme Court rejects Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, New York Times, NPR Online News, CBS, Politico, and CNBC. The Supreme Court on Friday voted 6-3 to three to strike down U.S. President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, which would have given $10,000 in loan relief to individuals making less than $125,000 per year and $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients, a total of more than $430 billion. Nearly 26 million borrowers had already applied for the forgiveness, which would have also forgiven loans for couples making less than $250,000 per year combined. Already 16 million applications were approved, but due to legal battles, no loans had been forgiven. The plan was announced last August under the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students or HEROES Act, which allows the Secretary of Education to alleviate the hardship that federal student loan recipients may suffer as a result of national emergencies, with the COVID pandemic qualifying as a hardship. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that the program should be struck down because it, quote, not only nullifies existing provisions, but augments and expands them dramatically. Payments will restart in October, with a grace period for the first three months. In response to the ruling, Biden said his administration is looking into a new route to student debt relief under the 1965 Higher Education Act. All right, definitely some diametrically opposed political narratives on this story. Let's start with the Republican spin from Daily Wire. SCOTUS just saved the American people from Biden's unconstitutional power grab. He never had the right to throw around $400 billion of taxpayer money like his own personal piggy bank without congressional approval. Democrats will have to find another way to bribe young people for their votes. MSNBC is giving us the Democratic narrative. The HEROES Act is straightforward in granting the executive branch the authority it needs to assist citizens during a national crisis, including forgiving student loan debt during a pandemic. It's SCOTUS that has made up a new legal approach and overstepped its bounds here, not the Biden administration. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's an 18% chance that the U.S. will forgive $10,000 of federal student loans per person before the year 2024. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. More news from the Supreme Court. They rule a web designer can't be forced to support same-sex weddings. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Guardian, Reuters, BBC News, ABC7 of Los Angeles, Axios, and NBC News. 
The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of Colorado web designer Lori Smith, who challenged her state's anti-discrimination law that she said would require her to violate her Christian faith by offering her company, 303 Creatives, web design services for same-sex weddings. The 6-3 decision broke down along ideological lines, with the high court's conservative justices overturning a lower court ruling that rejected Smith's request for a religious exemption from Colorado's law. Smith, who adheres to the Christian belief that marriage is between one man and one woman, sued the state in 2016, but critics say she was never actually asked to design a website for same-sex couples. However, legal experts say an individual request is irrelevant when considering the implications of the law. While Smith argued that Colorado's law violated her First Amendment right to free speech, adding that her religious disagreement isn't discrimination, her opponents say that a ruling in her favor offers a license to discriminate on racial and other grounds. In the majority opinion, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote that the First Amendment protects all Americans' right to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands. Justice Sotomayor dissented, calling the decision heartbreaking and a reactionary exclusion against LGBTQ people. Friday's decision comes a day after SCOTUS delivered a landmark decision against race-based admissions policies. On Friday, the high court also ruled against President Joe Biden's student debt forgiveness plan that would eliminate up to $20,000 of debt per student and cost more than $400 billion. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. A couple of spins have emerged. The first one is a right narrative coming from Alpha News. The Supreme Court's decision to protect Christians' right to free speech is a massive win, not only for people of faith, but it is also a resounding affirmation of the First Amendment. Justice Gorsuch and his conservative colleagues understand that the Constitution explicitly protects the right to speak freely and prohibits the state from forcing speech. While the left-wing establishment thinks that free speech only applies to radical ideologues who force a warped sense of morality on others, the Supreme Court knows that free speech applies to all of us, even Christians. And a contrasting left narrative spin from the Daily Beast. The U.S. Supreme Court has unapologetically endorsed discrimination against LGBTQ people as the radical right wing looks to undo decades of progress. Many in America will hide behind the First Amendment as an excuse to deny the rights of marginalized people. Friday's decision is even inconsistent with previous rulings on the topic of anti-LGBTQ discrimination and shows that this court doesn't care about the Constitution. It's only concerned with regressive policies. News coming from Brazil as Bolsonaro has been banned from running for office until the year 2030. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, BBC News, Breitbart, New York Times, and Al Jazeera. Brazil's top electoral court voted on Friday that former right-wing president Jair Bolsonaro had abused his power as president by deliberately undermining faith in the country's voting systems blocking him from seeking public office until the 2030 election. The seven judges voted against Bolsonaro at the end of a swift, non-criminal trial that consisted of justices who delivered their analysis before voting, with brief comments from the defendant's legal team. The case stemmed from a speech he gave on July 18, 2022, in a meeting with foreign diplomats in his residence in Brasilia, where he claimed that the electronic voting machines used in Brazil were prone to hacking and open to fraud. He is the third ever Brazilian president to be barred from running again, with the other two being his nemesis, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, whose ban was annulled in 2021, 
clearing the way for his successful campaign last year, and the country's first democratically elected president in decades, Fernando Cayor de Mello. Bolsonaro is expected to appeal the ruling in Brazil's Supreme Court, a body with which he has long been at loggerheads. Even if this appeal is successful, Bolsonaro would face another 15 electoral cases that could also bar him from seeking the presidency. Separately, the former president faces multiple criminal investigations that could put him behind bars, including for allegedly fomenting a nationwide movement to reject his narrow defeat in the October elections. There's a left narrative spin coming from America's Quarterly. While this ruling alone will not remove the threat to the Brazilian democracy posed by the far-right Bolsonaristas, this is indeed an encouraging step ahead to promote national reconciliation and restore faith in institutions. Bolsonaro has long attempted to undermine Brazil's democratic establishment, casting ill-founded doubts over the country's voting machines, insulting Supreme Court justices, and emboldening his coup-mongering supporters. Hopefully, his ban will open the way for moderate contenders on the right. And the Wall Street Journal brings us the right narrative. You don't have to be a Bolsonaro supporter to see that Lula is using the judicial system as a means to punish his predecessor. Lula is a leftist career politician who was convicted on corruption charges before they were stunningly reversed by activist judges. Right-leaning figures across the nation are being censored, and checks and balances are being curtailed as the legal system is increasingly used as a weapon against opponents. We ought to be skeptical about charges against Bolsonaro in this environment. The U.S. considers sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NBC, and Politico. Amid Ukraine's struggles to make major gains in its long-anticipated counter-offensive launched earlier this month, the Biden administration is said to be strongly considering approving the transfer of cluster munitions to the war-torn country, according to a number of U.S. officials who spoke to CNN. Two senior U.S. officials also told NBC News that the U.S. is leaning towards providing the controversial weapon to Ukraine, stating that an announcement could come as early as next month. Meanwhile, a third official cited by the publication specified that the U.S. is mulling sending dual-purpose improved conventional munitions, or DPICMs, an advanced cluster bomb capable of being fired from artillery systems that Kyiv has already received. Ukraine has made repeated requests to Washington for cluster bombs, munitions that disperse in the air, releasing scores of explosive bomblets over a wide area. DPICMs release 644 bomblets each with a blast radius of 100 meters. Last December, the Biden administration said it had concerns over the use of such weapons and declined to fulfill Ukraine's requests. Among the reasons the U.S. has been reluctant to provide the weapons is because cluster bombs pose a greater risk to civilians. Additionally, key U.S. allies, including the U.K., France, and Germany, are all signatories to the convention that bans their production and use. Neither the U.S., Russia, nor Ukraine are signatories, with the latter two reportedly using the weapon during the present war. The renewed debate about their use hotted up last week when Laura Cooper, the Pentagon's Europe chief, told the House Foreign Affairs Committee that the cluster weapons, quote, would be useful, especially against dug-in Russian positions on the battlefield. Congressional Republicans backed the move while Democrats opposed it. Meanwhile, although a decision is yet to be made, U.S. officials speaking to CNN said they have managed to reduce some allies' concerns about the prospect of sending such weapons to Ukraine. Scott, thanks for the rundown of those facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Politico. While all concerns will be debated and no decision has yet been reached, 
the transfer of cluster bombs to Ukraine would provide Kyiv with an immediate increase of firepower that will help it punch through Russian defensive lines. The move would improve the prospects of a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive. And Human Rights Watch brings us the establishment critical narrative. Cluster bombs can inflict devastating damage to civilians, particularly if fired at densely populated areas. Worse still, released bomblets frequently do not explode on impact, meaning they can remain a threat like landmines for years to come. The U.S. should not be considering sending the weapons to Ukraine. Rather, it should be backing disarmament initiatives. And the nerds from the Metaculous Prediction community say that there is a 4% chance that in 2023 there will be another war with more casualties than the Russian-Ukraine war. The World Bank approves $700 million for crisis-hit Sri Lanka. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, the Hindu Business Line, and SWI. On Thursday, the World Bank announced it will give Sri Lanka $700 million in budgetary and welfare aid, the largest single amount since an International Monetary Fund, or IMF, deal was reached in March. About $500 million will be allocated for budgetary support, while $200 million will be used for welfare support. The strategy focuses on early economic stabilization and structural reforms, as well as protection of the poor and vulnerable. Sri Lanka is on the verge of bankruptcy, struggling with its worst financial crisis since it gained independence from Britain in 1948. Last year, its foreign exchange hit record lows, triggering its first-ever foreign debt default. Last year's economic crisis precipitated in political unrest. There are still ongoing severe shortages of food and fuel, medicine and cooking gas, and citizens have faced waits in long lines to buy limited supplies of such essentials. The IMF approved a $3 billion bailout package in March, which is expected to bring an additional $4 billion from the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, and other multilateral agencies. This week, Sri Lanka will reportedly release a domestic debt restructuring program to push forward its negotiations with bondholders and bilateral creditors, including China, Japan, and India. The Wire of India brings us an establishment critical narrative. Aid from the World Bank is no magic pill. Along with COVID, which damaged Sri Lanka's tourism industry, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa's financial policies have plunged the South Asian nation into a deep economic crisis. It's essential the government devises a homegrown alternative strategy, addresses soaring inflation and domestic terrorism, stimulates growth, and invites global investment, initiates anti-corruption reforms, and protects economic and social rights to help resolve the spiraling crisis and reduce the country's reliance on foreign debts. Al Jazeera brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Sri Lanka's economic woes are perennial. The country has withstood civil war, and could never recover from the devastating 2004 tsunami. It is now tested by a profound economic collapse that has spawned a humanitarian crisis and political upheaval. The country's liquidity has dried up due to its soaring foreign debt repayments. The IMF and the World Bank's loans can help release Sri Lanka from the debt trap, mitigate suffering, and break a spiral eroding its citizens' human rights. The White House approves a potential $440 million arms sale to Taiwan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Zawiya, Al-Arabia, Barron's, CNN, Reuters, and the Economic Times. On Thursday, the Pentagon revealed that the U.S. State Department had approved two potential deals with Taiwan, possibly selling up to $440 million worth of ammunition and logistic support to the East Asian state. 
The first deal, valued at $332 million, centers upon the sale of 30mm ammunition, while the second $108 million transaction concerns spare and repair parts for vehicles and weapons to the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office. The two deals mark the 10th arms sales package to Taiwan by the Biden administration. The U.S.'s Defense Security Cooperation Agency stated that the sales served the country's national interests by modernizing Taiwan's armed forces and maintaining a credible defense capability. Taiwan's defense ministry praised the plans for enhancing the state's defense capacity, as well as maintaining regional stability politically, militarily, and economically. Proposed sales must be approved by Congress. However, with a decades-long policy of selling arms to Taiwan, it's unlikely to be rejected. Despite this, the U.S. maintains its stance of only officially recognizing Beijing, which claims the island as its own territory. The news comes as Taipei claimed on Friday that it detected five Chinese warships and 24 Chinese warplanes around the island, 11 of which reportedly crossed the median line of the Taiwan Strait. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. The Washington Post is giving us our first spin. It's an anti-China narrative. It's right for the Pentagon to view a potential conflict with China over Taiwan as its top priority. It's right for the Pentagon to view a potential conflict with China over Taiwan as its top priority. Any conflict in the region would gravely weaken the U.S.'s position, while allowing China to take one step further towards global hegemony. Washington must ensure that Taiwan's defenses are maintained. And we have a counter-pro-China narrative from China Daily. Under the pretense of providing protection, the U.S. is turning Taiwan into an ammunition depot, threatening the one-China principle it claims to acknowledge. As Taiwan continues to spend taxpayers' money to satisfy the U.S., further danger and volatility will continue to grow in the region. The Metaculous Prediction community, offering their nerd narrative for this story as well, they say there's a 60% chance that if China invades Taiwan before 2035, the U.S. will respond with military force. An update coming from the Parkland shooting as an officer has been found not guilty of neglect. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Sun Sentinel, NBC, Associated Press, and CNN. On Thursday, Scott Peterson, the former sheriff's deputy who, as a school resource officer, stayed outside during the 2018 killing of 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, was found not guilty of any charges related to his alleged lack of response to the mass school shooting. Prosecutors had claimed Peterson was the, quote, caregiver of the school's students and had an obligation to protect them. Peterson, the first police officer to be charged with child neglect as a caregiver, faced decades in prison if he'd been convicted. Peterson faced seven counts of felony child neglect and three counts of culpable negligence for the deaths of 10 victims, including eight students. He faced one charge of perjury for saying he didn't see the students fleeing the building and only heard a few gunshots. Students, teachers, and law enforcement officers testified during the trial, with the training supervisor saying Peterson didn't follow protocols for confronting the shooter. While Peterson didn't testify, his lawyers brought witnesses who didn't think the shots were coming from the school's K-12 classroom building. Peterson, who was the only person other than the shooter with a gun at the school, was at the scene, prosecutors said, for more than four minutes of the nearly seven-minute shooting and failed to act, taking cover for 45 minutes instead of helping students. All right, Hot Air brings us Narrative A on this story. Peterson's acquittal is a slap in the face to the still-grieving families who lost people in a massacre that Peterson could have stopped. 
This was pitiful inaction and failure to do his job to protect the victims. Even worse, he lied about what he saw and heard and should have been convicted. Narrative B is coming from American Lawyer Media. No law enforcement officer has ever been considered a legal caregiver of a community's children, and the charges against Peterson were completely inappropriate. His acquittal is a win for law enforcement. No one deserves nearly 100 years in prison for how Peterson acted at the scene of the crime. Eric, yesterday on the show, I was talking about, uh, there was a story about politician being bribed with $60 million. And I was talking about how you don't know really how you're going to react until you're presented with that kind of a dilemma, opportunity, however you want to call it. When the bullets start flying, you kind of figure out what kind of person you are. You know, it'll happen one day to you, buddy. So be prepared. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Google pulls news from its products over a new Canadian law. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBC, Al Jazeera, Reuters, NPR Online News, and NBC News. On Thursday, Google announced it would pull Canadian news from its search engine and other products in response to the Online News Act, which received royal assent in June and must take effect within the next six months. The Online News Act, also known as Bill C-18, sets rules for online platforms to negotiate commercial deals to pay news publishers for content to try to create fair revenue sharing between two sides. Canada's independent watchdog last year estimated that news publishers would stand to receive $249 million per year under the legislation. Google's announcement comes one week after Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, vowed to execute a similar blackout of Canadian publishers. This law is similar to one Australia adopted in 2021, which caused Facebook to remove sharing and viewing of local and international news in that country. But news was restored after a deal was made between the company and the government. The past three years have seen other countries pass similar regulations, with Google agreeing to pay publishers in France, Germany, Brazil, and the UK. Scott, thank you for those facts. BBC News is bringing us our first spin. It is a pro-establishment narrative. This wasn't an easy decision, but it had to be made in the face of an unworkable bill that hasn't taken the tech company's suggestions into consideration. Canada is only hurting itself because now it won't receive any money from the big tech firms, and the country's major media associations and outlets will lose the traffic Google and Meta generate. The government should negotiate a better deal with these companies. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Toronto Sun. It's obscene that these big tech firms would rather spend money to rework their platforms to exclude Canadian sources rather than pay a small portion of their billions to compensate those who are creating the content. This is nothing more than bullying. The Canadian government shouldn't capitulate, and Canadian news consumers should do their part by going directly to the sources of the content. News coming from India as allegations of selling cow meat has created anti-Muslim violence. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Quint, and BBC News. In India, two Muslim men on Sunday were allegedly attacked by vigilantes while carrying 450 kilograms or 990 pounds of meat from a vendor in Sangamner to Mumbai, with Afan Abdul Ansari, 32, dying, and Nasir Hussain, 24, being hospitalized. The men believed the duo was transporting cow meat, which is banned in the city of Nashik. According to the police complaint, the two men were beaten by 15 to 20 men using wooden sticks and metal rods. Eleven were later arrested after Nasir gave a statement at the hospital. The police have also charged the victims with violating the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, which prohibits slaughtering bulls, oxen, and cows 
in the wider state of Maharashtra. While the slaughter of water buffaloes is legal, they're accused of killing two buffaloes and a cow. According to his uncle, Nasir is currently in the intensive care unit and may have suffered brain damage. He also alleged that vigilantes had previously extorted the two men for money to transport meat, though he claims the pair never transported beef. Similar vigilante murders have occurred in recent years, including 11 men sentenced to life in prison for beating 55-year-old Ali Mudin Ansari in Jharkhand State, where slaughtering cows is also prohibited. The ruling BJP party made statements on, quote, cow vigilantism, but one lawmaker stated he had, quote, no regret for the violence against what he characterized as a cow smuggler. Thanks for those meaty facts, Eric. We have a narrative A from A News. Islamophobic atrocities like this have been on the rise since Prime Minister Narendra Modi rose to power, and the government has done little to stop it. Not only did these vigilantes indiscriminately kill Ansari, but the police have since charged both victims with violating animal cruelty laws. The families of victims are also often poor, leaving their communities fearing for their lives and unable to afford legal protection. Narrative B comes from Opindia. While vigilantism should absolutely and always be condemned, Hindus also face a great deal of religious violence. Incidents against Muslims often receive disproportionate coverage compared to violence levied on Hindu communities. This is a tragic case, but more context must be provided in the media regarding the scope of religious violence in general. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 53% chance there will be a non-BJP Prime Minister of India before the year 2030. And our final story, astronomers claim a planet escaped death in a binary system. Here the facts as agreed upon by Ars Technica, TechSpot, and BBC News. The planet 8 Ursae Minoris B, which was discovered in 2015, was never supposed to have been visible as it should have been engulfed by a nearby dying star. Scientists now believe they know how the planet survived. According to a study published in the journal Nature, the lifespan of 8 Ursae Minoris B, which was discovered in 2015, was never supposed to have been visible as it should have been engulfed by a nearby dying star. Scientists now believe they know how the planet survived. According to a study published in the journal Nature, the lifespan of 8 Ursae Minoris, the star accompanying the gas giant planet, was supposed to run out and engulf its orbital neighbor. Researchers now believe that 8 Ursae Minoris B started out orbiting two stars, one of which was 8 Ursae Minoris. As the smaller of the two stars, Ursae Minoris stripped its bigger neighbor's atmosphere, leaving it as a shrunken, helium-rich version of itself but keeping the danger away from the planet. The going theory is that as dwarf stars, those like Earth's sun, deplete all the hydrogen burning at their core, they become red giants that expand and consume all the nearest terrestrial objects, as is expected to occur in our solar system in roughly one billion years. While it's mere speculation, the scientists also theorize the possibility that the planet was actually formed by the debris ejected by the merging of the two stars. Lead researcher Dr. Mark Hahn from the University of Hawaii said, Most stars are in binary systems, but we don't yet fully grasp how planets may form around them. While the current understanding is that most are in binary systems, Dr. Hahn said that many more peculiar planetary systems may exist due to companion stars like 8 Ursae Minoris. Scott, thanks for those interesting facts. Narrative A is our first spin coming from Universe Today. This star binary theory has been accepted for years, leading scientists to believe that our sun once had its own companion, 
Researchers have also said they found an exact twin 184 light years away, which could mean the existence of the Neptune sized Planet 9, and possibly that may suggest the presence of another body in our celestial neighborhood. Planets are showing themselves to be cunning at evading cosmic catastrophe. And narrative B comes from Earth Sky. This finding also supports another hypothesis. Resilient plants and binary systems may be a good place to search for life. These systems very likely contain the building blocks of life, and astronomers may want to focus on these instead of just on solar systems that look like our own. 8. Ursae Minoris B itself may not be brimming with life, but other planets and binary systems would be worth a close look for exobiologists. Metaculous Prediction Community is giving us our final nerd narrative today. They say there's a 22% chance that conclusive evidence for extraterrestrial life will be discovered within our solar system by 2050. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, July 1st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wall, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.